There's a story that I've heard a number of places, and I don't know where it originated. Um, another minister had done some research into it and found that it had been attributed to a Harvard chaplain, an Episcopal bishop, Marcus Borg, uh, Forest Church, the UU minister from All Souls in New York City, or the former UU minister from All John Buren is a UUA president from years gone by. I mean, all of these people were attributed with having originated the story. The story goes that uh, an atheist is declaring his views about the non-existence of God, and a clergy person walks up to the atheist and says, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in because I probably don't believe in that God either. Um, I know that the very word God can elicit strong responses among Unitarian Universalists, both positive and negative. When I hear about that or notice those reactions, I'm immediately curious about, you know, wanting to know what the stories behind the responses are, mostly because they so often stand in stark contrast to what is in my own mind when and if I use the word God. The responses are to something some idea of God that isn't like what I think of when I use that word. Please know that I understand there are good reasons and layers of them why people have strong responses. I am not here to torment anyone. But what I would like to do is talk a little bit about what I do think of when I use that word, the word God. Um, And as Susan pointed out in her story, many people in this tradition have other ways that they express ideas of what is beyond us. My job is not to convince you of my faith perspective or my ideas or ask you to share them or agree with me, but instead to keep you challenging yours. And rather than deconstructing all the things that I don't believe that God is and making a list of those, I'd like to begin at a very fundamental level to formulate kind of a fresh construct. In our culture, vocabulary is very limited and sharing ideas of the transcendent is difficult, especially if we take away the language that is most commonly understood um, to communicate those ideas. With all the cultural baggage and debris that goes with the word God, it is still one of the most effective tools for communicating some ideas in broader circles 
than almost anything, well, than anything else. In those kinds of circles, even the imams from the uh, Islamic masjids say God, or some of them do, not all of them. Some of them use the word God instead of Allah. So that we don't get stuck in semantics when we're trying to communicate ideas that we share. Admittedly, it's a word of convenience for me because in one syllable it can cover so much ground. In our efforts to communicate grand principles like truth, love, compassion, when we choose not to employ the terminology that others use, we're kind of cutting our nose off to spite our face. This past week, I attended a clergy breakfast that one of the hospitals had here in town. Um, and the speaker that morning was Dr. Anil Nanda, who also gave the address, incidentally, this year at World Religion Day. Dr. Nanda refers to himself as a Hindu boy who married a Catholic Yankee woman and moved to the South. Um, He shared with us a quote from Thomas Jefferson that goes like this. I never told my own religion nor scrutinized that of another. I never attempted to make a convert nor wished to change another's creed. I am satisfied that yours must be an excellent religion to have produced a life of such exemplary virtue and correctness. For it is in our lives and not from our words that our religion must be judged. Now we're good, principled, hard-working, unselfish people. Are our lives then such that others look at them and think our religion must be excellent? I don't know. I can't read other people's minds anyway. Exemplary virtue? Wow. The physical manifestation of that which begins somewhere else, perhaps within, perhaps beyond, A part of that which I call God exists in every good deed that anyone ever does. The impulse to altruism that that which, as we mature, leads to our doing good without a reason. Not doing it for results or for a good feeling even just because it's the only thing we can do. I hope to grow into that. I I think of Mahatma Gandhi's words that uh, there are people in the world so hungry that God can only appear to them in the form of bread. 
And as Susan was talking about us being God's hands to the children, if we carry that bread to the people that need it, then we're God's hands. And what I understand to be what I call God is in that action. That which I call God is compassion. I have with some frequency here made reference to the idea that every thought and word and deed has effect in the world no matter how subtle the level may be. We live in relationship to one another. We affect one another constantly. Though I cannot state or prove the theory, my experience would support the theory that our actions and interactions have impact in discrete energies across space and reverberate, perhaps across time, That which flows through us and between us and connects us all as one to another, those discrete energies, in a oneness that permeates in ways more actual than metaphorical, binding all life and all existence in this cosmic story, it's there too. And inasmuch as we are able to comprehend a wholeness of humankind, actually hold such a vision and move unwaveringly and faithfully toward it, I call our lives God. I thought it really exciting yesterday when I was listening to Red River Radio and there was a news story that dealt with physics. It seems that because of what some physicists call a bump in their data, now they're saying that there might be forces of nature never before known. The way they put it was that there may be a new force of nature. That's the way the physicists said it. Now, since I know absolutely nothing about it, you know, my imagination can run away with that and, and uh, play with it however I want. The, uh, what he said is there are other proce- processes not yet seen. Let's see. And there's something that's called, what, the standard model. Kind of the basics for a lot of stuff. It's a theory, and, it, and it, they already know that it's not comprehensive because of some things that it doesn't include. But now they know that it might be just wrong. And for, for me, that's like, see? There's so much more here. So much more than we can imagine. So much more than we will ever know. And it's in the mystery of all of that that I find the word God. It's in the reservoir of all the knowledge that we don't have yet 
that I can call God. And this is kind of scary, but I could also call that omniscient. Except, you know, I'm, I'm not doing this personification thing. Which we did in our song, Name Unnamed. Right? So far in the songs that we've done and in what I've been talking about, all of this fits together real nicely for me and I don't have any contradictions. Um, okay. But at, there in the unknown, at our growing edges, all the things that we are barely scratching the surface on, still, after 13.7 or 8 billion years... There, too, is what I call God. I've heard a number of self-identified atheists, friends, talk about their understandings of what is and what they use as proof to say that there is not this thing called God. And that fits with what I understand, too. I'm wondering, you know, I'm thinking what they call God isn't what I believe in. And I wonder if that's reciprocal, if they can come to understand that what I mean by God is what they believe. But I now come to a point at which I honestly don't know where other people might stand. The minister of First Unitarian in Austin told me I would be surprised how many of my uh, parishioners or congregants shared this feeling. But I shift from notions of virtue and connectedness with others and great the great mysterious unknown to what feels to me like a knowingness or a presence, a familiarity. Yesterday here at the church for the work day, I was walking back towards the building and the wind blew. And in that wind, just for a moment, I felt a presence more clearly and more loudly than the birds were singing. I mean, it was, it was more palpable to me. I don't have words for it except to call it a sense of presence. Something perceived that in that moment but it, that in the moment before that, I wasn't aware of. In my mind, I wrote, I wrote that it's you know, louder than the birds. And then what came to my mind was a scene from the movie The City of Angels. You know, when the angels all go and stand at the shoreline and hear the music in the sunrise... Actually, I think it's the West Coast, and it would be the sunset. <laughs> so, but uh, they call it the sunrise. But it's, th it's, 
it makes me understand kind of what that would be like. It's like opening all the windows of who I am, my being, to experience life as something that's more than the livers of life. That sounded horrible. <laughs> Life's liver? What am I, chopped liver? <laughs> oh, my. In our hymnals, there's a wonderful reading from William Wordsworth that says, I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts. A sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. Do any of you have that feeling? A sense of presence that you can feel, not often at all, but I have a sense of some beingness with me, standing right next to me. I don't think I'm psychotic. (laughs) And I live with a psychologist or or a counselor. Years ago, when I was in the church careers department at Centenary, a woman named Mary Daly, who was an author, came to school. Now, Mary Daly was a radical feminist. She had been a professor of uh, Jesuits at Boston College and was very angry that the Catholic Church would not make women priests. She began systematically going through the English language and throwing out words that even in her mind implied male dominance and assembled a book that she called a wickedary because dictionary had (laughs) its own implications. She wrote a book called Beyond God the Father. And I read this book. I got to go to lunch with the woman. She was, she was a very angry woman. I think when she passed away, she was still a very angry woman. In her book, Beyond God the Father, she walks you through the process of throwing away all of the things that you build in your childhood, perhaps, ideas of God. Getting rid of those ideas, getting rid of that baggage, and stripping it down till you have nothing left. I went through this book and tried to do exactly that. But I was left with a presence that I couldn't make go away. Even in what I call what has been referred to as dark nights of the soul. When it feels more like there's no communication and I'm being ignored than it does that it goes away. This is my experience. 
It's funny to talk about all of this because the impression it gives is misleading. I have no images at all to to accompany this. Like the child in the Sunday school classroom who was drawing and the teacher asked what he was drawing and he said, I'm drawing God. And And she said, well, nobody knows what God looks like. And he said, well, they will when I'm through. I don't have that. I don't have those images. I don't even have the abstracts. No anthropomorphic attributes or emotions like anger or sadness or even joy that I attribute to this sense of presence. I don't understand it to be a meddlesome or biased or egocentric thing not in control of my decisions or actions or the consequences that I experience because of those. Not something that sends hurricanes to New Orleans or tsunamis to Japan to punish people. but it is as clear to me as the sense that someone else is in my house. That peace doesn't bring a sense of apathy. But allays the anxiety that can so easily accompany considerations of all the brokenness of this world. The complications and complexities of life and systems, whatever it is or isn't scientifically, it is source from which I consistently draw my humble inspirations and sense of confidence. Sometimes I fairly feel it shine. There's a light with my eyes opened or closed. Within the sense of being part of it, accompanied by, held within, surrounded with, Therein, I, found, I find a profound sense of home and of unconditional acceptance. From there, I make modest progress towards seeing more of the beauty and perf- that beauty and that perfection in every person I meet. I work at it. I make progress. Positive regard and goodwill bring about generative change. And part of what I call God is love and mercy. not limited by my understanding of those things. 
But there's also paradox. Opposites that would seem to be mutually exclusive, but nonetheless coexist. This word I use to simultaneously name truth, virtue, compassion, wholeness, mystery, presence, love, mercy. Paradox is not, not something I'm trying to, to sell you. God is a word I have chosen to reclaim, reframe, and today explain. There are so many things that we have yet to learn. We make our own boxes to live in, and sometimes we box ourselves into insisting that we have no box. But we do. We may find ourselves living out of responses that are rooted far in our past with the only way to freedom being through examination again of what holds us there. I hope you'll share your thoughts about this with me. Um, And I hope that we will all find freedom from the boxes that we put others in about God. And uh, thank you for letting me talk about it.